You are listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. If, uh, if you weren't in the room earlier when I introduced myself, my name's Sam. I serve as one of the leaders here at the church. And uh, this is my friend Pauline. I say hi to Pauline. Pauline, uh, you, you probably know Pauline. She's, she and her family kind of serve in various capacities across our church. And uh, she was just on the team playing a few moments ago, leading us in worship, and today she's going to be reading our scripture for us. So if you have a Bible, whether a physical Bible or a digital Bible, or you want to grab the one in the pew in front of you, we're going to turn to Acts chapter 12 today. We're going to read Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 1. And so we'll give you a moment to turn there. And then as you turn there, would you stand to your feet as we read scripture together today? It's also going to be on the screen, so you can check it out there. Acts chapter 12, verse 1 to 19. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone into the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your, clo- put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered them 
to be executed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks, Pauline. You can take a seat. Well, in the early 20th century, there was a man named Sunder Singh. He was a former Sikh who, who had been converted, this radical conversion story, and given his life to Jesus. Pretty quickly after coming to faith and encountering Jesus, he felt this strong call on his life to, to, to a life of missions work in Tibet, to go to this area of the world that was hostile to the Christian faith and to share the gospel really with anyone who would listen. Sunder traveled in and out of that country, in and out of Tibet for, for 20 times, over 20 times. And every time he went in, he was risking his life. He knew that if the wrong people heard what was going on, what he was doing, he'd be put in prison, or worse, he'd be killed. In 1912, Sunder was arrested by the Grand Lama, this kind of chief monk that ruled over Tibet. He was beaten and bruised and thrown into this big, dark pit filled with a, a pile of rotten bodies, kind of in the bottom. And as he was thrown in, he broke or seriously injured his arm and was just left on top of this pile of rotting bodies for dead. The pit was dark. I imagine it was incredibly smelly, maybe the worst smell he had ever smelt in his life. His body was in unbearable pain. As he lay in the mess in the rebble of that cave, Sunder prayed. Three nights later, he woke up to the sound of the grate above him opening up. And he saw this shadowy figure kind of backlit by the entrance and the light outside the pit. And, and, and it was all a few dozen feet above him, but the, the figure that he could see lowered down a rope with a loop at the bottom of the, the rope. It was perfect for him because he had, he had hurt his arm, but he could just slip his leg inside the, the, the hoop and, and be pulled up. And so that figure at the top pulled him up, pulled him up close to the entrance. And, and then they closed the entrance, this figure, sealed it up, locked it, and as Sunder got up to look at who it was that had rescued him, that had saved him, there was no one there, anywhere. He explains that the fresh air revived him and his injured arm was, was immediately healed. So he did what any crazy missionary would do and he went back to the streets, continued to preach the same gospel that had him put in prison the first time, boldly preaching the gospel in the streets. Well, it didn't take long for the Grand Lama to hear the news that Sunder was at it again. He was furious. So he arrested him again and interrogated him. Who helped you? Who let you out? Who did it? Who betrayed me? Who stole the key? See, the Grand Lama was the only person who had the key to that pit. And he stored it on his waist on a key ring. So when the Grand Lama pulled off his key ring to see the key, it was still there. He was shocked and appalled and actually quite terrified. And so he freed Sunder and told him never to come back to Tibet. Amazing. It's a miraculous story. More recently, Pastor Thomas, who many of you know, our, our global partner in Mexico, he tells the story of, of a time that he and his team were driving through the Copper Canyon and going to this new area that he felt that the Lord was leading them into. This new village to meet people and to, to care for them and to share the gospel. Every community in that area of Mexico is, is, is a little bit dangerous as you never know who you're gonna find or what you're gonna find along the way. He said that they were driving down this old dirt road and, and they encountered this large gate that was kind of locked and bolted shut. They weren't sure what to do. They really felt like God was leading them into this new place to advance the kingdom in this area of the canyon, but it appeared that they were not able to, to do it. That they were gonna be stopped by this big locked gate. It seemed like a dead end to their mission. 
what they were doing. And as they sat in their truck, they prayed. Like, like God, if, you, if you're asking us to go into this community, if you're calling us to bring the good news to these people in this village, to this part of the canyon, we need you to open this gate. And as they sat in the truck, they say the gate miraculously opened up on its own. There's no one around. They took that as a sign that God was leading them into this community. They continued on their journey. Isn't that cool? And now, several years later, it's crazy the amount of lives that have been changed by Jesus that we've been able to partner with them to reach and to serve and to care for on the other side of that open gate. This is the kind of miraculous story that's taking place in our text in Acts chapter 12. Peter, who's one of Jesus' disciples, his closest friends, and has become one of the primary leaders of the early church, he's in prison. He's been arrested by King Herod and he's being, being held in this jail cell waiting for his execution. Herod, who's this sort of puppet king to the Romans, he's, he's, he's on this, a bit of a witch hunt trying to find Christians, followers of Jesus, and, and he's putting them in prison or he's killing them off. He's trying to stomp out this growing movement of Christians, of Jesus followers that seems to be spreading all throughout the ancient world. Maybe he felt like it was a threat to his own dominance or, or power. So it's the night before Peter's trial, and he's in his jail cell. And and I imagine maybe Herod has heard rumors of Jesus' people and the miracles that seems to happen around them, how not long ago, other followers of Jesus were miraculously released from prison or other miracles that have happened. So Herod's not taking any risks. It's normal in that day to, 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 um, to chain a prisoner to one guard. That was kind of the standard practice. But what Herod does with Peter is he chains him to two guards, And not only that, but he also puts two guards outside the cell. So essentially, no one's getting in and no one's getting out. And while this is going on, while Peter's chained up in prison, the church in Jerusalem has gathered all night for a prayer and worship meeting. They're earnestly praying to God. That word earnestly in our text is is the same word that's used by Luke talking about Jesus in the Garden of Eden when, when he's earnestly crying out to the Father to take this cup from me begging the Father to take it. So so they're crying out to God, asking for for Peter to be rescued. They're singing, and they're praying, and and they're they're contending for their friend. They're asking for a miracle, probably reminding God of how he's worked in the past. You know, you, you delivered Daniel from the lion's den. You delivered David from Saul. Now deliver Peter from the hands of his oppressors, from Herod, we pray. Don't let him die. Bring him back to us, God. Meanwhile, as I said, Peter's chained up in prison, but it would appear that he's not worried at all. He's actually fast asleep. I love that, he's surrounded by guards, he's he's in chains, he's just hours away from his execution and he's in this deep, deep sleep, like a REM sleep, he's probably drooling and snoring. I wonder if he's sleeping so well because he has so entrusted his, his life into the hands of God, he has nothing to fear. Peter doesn't know what's gonna happen at this point in the story. But if he dies, he'll see Jesus face to face. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, there's nothing for him to fear. If he lives, he'll go on preaching. He'll continue to advance the mission. If he dies, he'll see Jesus face to face. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Peter is sleeping in the cell. And it kind of reminds me of of Jesus sleeping on the fishing boat in, in Mark chapter four, verse 38, where Jesus is asleep in the midst of this crazy storm. Remember that story? The waves are splashing. The boat is actually starting to sink. It's raining, there's thunder, and Jesus is just sound asleep on a pillow. I wonder if Peter maybe even was recalling that memory of being on the fishing boat with Jesus in his mind. Maybe as he's sitting in the cell, 
He's thinking about Jesus just sleeping so peacefully in the midst of that tragic storm. And he's actually chuckling to himself as he remembers his rabbi, his Lord, taking a nap while they're chaotically trying to, to just stay alive. Maybe he's reminiscing over the story. So inspired by how Jesus was so fully entrusting his life to the Father. And as Peter entrusts his future to God, his storm to God, he lays his head back on the cold concrete of his cell and he falls asleep. And this is where there's a pivot in the story. Verse seven says, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. The angel starts this kind of segment with this bright light to try to wake Peter up. But it doesn't work. Peter doesn't wake up. Any deep sleepers here who are like need two or three alarm clocks in order to get up in the morning? It appears that this is what's going on. There's first a light, but that doesn't seem to work. And so the angel jabs him like, Wake up, get up quick. And in that moment, the chains fell off Peter's wrists and this rescue mission began. He's half asleep, but he, but he jumps up, not really sure what's going on, not really sure if he's just dreaming or not, but he follows the angel's instructions. He probably is a bit of a mess. I imagine he's putting his sandals on the wrong feet. His, his tunic is backwards. He hasn't had his morning coffee. He's, his hair is uncombed. It's just all over the place. And, and he's like a sleepwalker who's not quite sure if or, or why, what's going on, where, where am I, what's going on? You know, I was, I was, in October, I had the opportunity to go with Pastor Mark and a group of other pastors to Israel. Some of them, you are in the room right now. And uh, I drew this short straw, and so I ended up rooming with Cam Daly, one of our pastors. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I love Cam. He's one of my best friends. Um, but, but for very good reason, I have great concern when I realized that I was going to be rooming with Cam, because Cam is a sleepwalker. And not only does he sleepwalk, but I, I asked him if I could share this story, don't worry. But not only does Cam sleepwalk, but he actually believes what's happening in his dream is actually happening. And so he's moving and walking. And, and so almost every night he woke me up in the middle of the night with one of his sleepwalking craziness. But one specific night, it was actually the, the night before we left Israel, I woke up in the middle of the night to Cam on all fours on top of me, saying, no, stop, stop, don't fall. And I'm like, Cam, we're in Israel. He's like, I know we're in Israel. I know you think I'm sleeping, but I'm not sleeping. I'm awake. I know we're in Israel. Stop, don't fall. And so I, I flicked on the lights and eventually he kind of woke up out of his state. And it uh, turns out, I guess we were on an archeological site. And I was uh, falling down this, the side of this cliff and Cam was actually trying to save me. And so I said, thank, well, thank you so much. Please go back to bed. But this is the kind of, I think this is kind of the state that, that Peter was in. He didn't know if he was awake or asleep. He, he was having, was this a vision? He was just following along and doing what the angel asked him to do. He put on his cloak and his sandals and he followed behind the angel, past the guard, then the second guard, and then they got to the gate. And as they get outside the city, probably a safe distance from where the, uh, the, the, the prison was, the angel just vanishes. I think maybe there's actually a, an important note here that God was at work even while Peter was sleeping. God is sending angel armies to do for Peter what he couldn't do for himself. But what was Peter doing? He wasn't contending. He wasn't trying to break out. He wasn't trying to pick the lock. He was sleeping. God is at work at all times, in all places, for us. Once there are ways down the street, the, the angel suddenly disappears. And, and then in verse 11, this is what Peter says. Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angels and rescued me from Herod's clutch. By the way, do you know 
that God still sends angel armies to protect and to deliver us? You know, we just spent the Advent season walking through different encounters that individuals in the Christmas story have with the angels. And it's amazing to study these, these beautiful texts, these accounts. But angels didn't just show up in biblical times. They're still very much a part of our day-to-day lives. There's this whole spiritual realm that is happening in around us. There's so much more going on in the world than we can see and feel and touch and taste. There's angels and there's, and there's demons, there's demonic forces. There's, there's this battle that's going on in the spiritual realm. And, and that's, not, that's not meant to bring fear. God is sovereign and he's in control of all of it, but, but we should be aware. Peter's experience, it, acquaint, it acquaints the, in, the embattled church with the true nature of her strength with the fact that no matter how grim life might appear, God and his angel armies are present and ministering all around us. And he can reach into our situation in an instant and deliver us at any moment. There's so much more going on in our world than meets the eye. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter five talks about this and tells us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. See, our battle is not against prime ministers or evil dictators or anthropologists or ideologies. Or This battle is against forces of evil in the heavenly realm. And this is why the greatest defense that the church had was prayer. It may have seemed more strategic for them to gather together and start to come up with the strategy of how to get Peter out of how to break him out of kidnapping of sorts. Or, or maybe they could develop a communication strategy and, and, and tell the public, put up posters or flyers telling people around what Herod was really up to, to force Herod's hand to, to let Peter go. But they commit to prayer because they realize that while their situation might leave them feeling hopeless and powerless, they're on the side of the one who's most powerful, the most powerful being in the universe, the one who even the forces of evil must bow down to. Okay, look at verse 12. When this had drawn on him that God had actually rescued him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Okay, many scholars say this is probably a place they regularly hung out. It's possible this is even for, for periods of time where the, where the disciples lived. And so Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. And when she recognized Peter's voice, she was overjoyed. She ran back without opening and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. Now catch what they say you're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting it was so, they said it must be her angel, but Peter kept on knocking. Wait, what? They've been praying and praying all night, maybe for days leading up to this, earnestly crying out to God to release Peter from prison. And then it happens, he shows up at the very location that they gathered together and they don't believe it. They tell poor Rhoda, the servant girl, who's probably this 12 or 13 year old kid, They tell her that she's out of her mind. It couldn't be Peter. Don't you remember? Peter's in prison. And when she insists that she's heard his voice, they say, Rhoda, shh, can't you see we're praying? Peter's in prison. You're probably seeing things. You're probably seeing his angel. Do you ever do that? You pray and pray and you ask God for something, but you have little to no expectation that he'll actually come through. Like you've been praying, but then you're absolutely shocked when he comes through and answers your prayer. This actually just happened to me in December. 
with the finances of our church. You know, I came up last week and shared just the amazing praise report that God's provided for all our needs. But I remember we, we were in this pretty difficult spot throughout the fall. Um, and, and I get it. We're in the middle of a recession and lots of people don't have excess income to give. Things are tight. But the finance team let me know on Christmas Eve. I think it was actually right before I got up to preach, very, very recently prior. Uh, they let me know that if we were going to make budget and all our expenses by the end of the year, that between Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve, we needed $360,000 to come in. <laughs> and I was praying every day, like multiple times a day. Every time I thought of it, I was praying, which was a lot. You know, God, this is your church. Provide for us like you always have. Do it again, Lord. Show us your faithfulness again. I trust you. And then on December 30th, my, my friend Paul, who oversees our operations team, he sent me a text saying that he was gonna give me an update by the end of that day on how our finances were doing. And I said, everything inside of me wanted to say, no, don't do it. I'm on holidays, I don't wanna know. Ignorance is bliss. Let me just enjoy this week. I'll come back and deal with it later. I don't wanna know that we're still behind budget. But he did later that day give me an update. And it turned out that on that day, all the money had come in that we needed, almost to the dollar at that point had come in. Uh, and what did I say? I'm like, what? No, recount the numbers. Run the total again. There's no way. I was almost in disbelief, like, what? That's crazy. How could that happen? Have you ever had a moment like that? Where you're praying and believing and asking God to come through for, for in a certain area of your life. And then when he does, you're actually shocked that he did. I feel like sometimes we forget that we serve a good, good God who actually hears our prayers. That we have this good father who finds great joy in giving good gifts to his children, whose plans for us are good. Why do we pray and pray and pray and then get surprised when God hears our prayer and responds? Why were the disciples, when they were gathered to pray in this prayer meeting for Peter, why were they in such disbelief that, that maybe, just maybe, God would hear their cry and do a miracle on Peter's behalf? I think that sometimes we struggle to believe for a miracle because of our own experience with unanswered prayer. Because we have prayed for something before. Something that was really important to us. For someone who meant the world to us and seemingly nothing happened. Or things didn't turn out the way we thought they were going to. Maybe you had great faith that Jesus was gonna heal a loved one and they still died or that a relationship was gonna be restored and it's still in turmoil, or that your business was gonna succeed and it's still not working out. I think that wrestle with, with, with our experience with unanswered prayer may have been, or at least is in part, the reason why, why the church was in such disbelief when Peter showed up at the door. Because the backdrop to this story of Peter's rescue, the breakout of prison, is actually verse one to five of chapter 12. Where just a few weeks prior, James was in prison also. And I think it's safe to conclude if they gathered all night to pray for Peter, they likely gathered to pray all night for James also, crying out to God for his release, asking God to send his angels to protect him. And while Peter's story ends in a miraculous rescue mission, James' story, just weeks before, ended with execution. Wait, God miraculously freed Peter, but James was unjustly executed? Why? Why would God step in and intervene, loosing the chains and, and, and blinding guards so that Peter could escape, all the while letting James suffer and die at the hand of Herod, the evil dictator? Why would he respond miraculously to Peter, to the prayers for Peter, and at the same time, silently to the prayers for James? 
We're talking about two guys who were in his inner circle. These were like his core three friends, Peter, James, and John. It's not like he loved Peter more. He didn't prefer one over the other. This was his best friend. Why? Why did God let James die? The only honest answer I can give you is I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why we gathered to pray for one follower of Jesus in our church and they're miraculously healed from a terminal disease. And then we, we cry out in prayer for another faithful follower of Jesus and they pass away. I don't know why sometimes we pray and, and there's instantaneous breakthrough in a person's life while other times we gather around a person and we pray and we seek and we anoint with oil and we listen and we get silence. I don't know. But here's what I do know, that God is immeasurably good. But sometimes he works slowly and mysteriously, but it's out of compassion and not apathy. That his perfect love requires that he's much more patient and slow to anger than I would ever be. And yet he promises that one day justice will be served and evil will be done away with once and for all. In Jesus, we see this God who weeps in the garden crying out to the Father in prayer, saying, take this cup from me, and actually himself experiences unanswered prayer as hours later he'd be nailed to a Roman cross. We serve a God who occasionally displays healing power, but who chose personal suffering as the means of final and unbreakable healing. The Bible is shockingly honest about this stuff. Oftentimes a lot more honest than we are typically. Honest about this, the fact that suffering in this life is pretty well inevitable, but also clear with the promise that he's weaving all these things together. He's moving it all together for our good, that he's braiding it together, the good and the bad, the tragedies and the disappointments and the mountaintops and the valleys. He's the kind of author that's twisting the story together, taking every bit of pain that you feel and actually releases the, the power of new life and renewal, the tears that you cry, they hit the soil and they become seeds that grow even greater fruit in your life if you allow him to work in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the questions. I learned recently that if you plant a, a, a young tree in the spring, all the energy of that tree planted in the spring, it, it, it goes into bearing fruit and leaves and buds. So, so while the roots do take root, they actually don't go down deep enough for that tree to ever become a really healthy tree. If you're a gardener, you can correct me later, but that's what I read. The tree's unlikely to become this super healthy and strong tree. So apparently the best time to plant a tree isn't actually in the spring, but is in the winter, when there's no leaves or fruit and where the weather isn't promoting buds and leaves to grow. That's when its root system can actually go down deep. See, it's in the winter that the tree is actually primed for the seasons to come. It's in the winter when the tree looks so unimpressive and when it looks like nothing's happening that beneath the surface, the roots of the tree is going deep down into the ground. It's preparing for the season to come. I've found in my own life that, that it's in difficult seasons when we encounter suffering, when we sit in the midst of unanswered prayer that our roots actually go down deep we actually see God at move and at work in our lives. And when God doesn't answer our prayer, or at least not the way that we expected that he would or should, it doesn't mean that he doesn't hear us. It doesn't mean that he doesn't love us or he's not close in our time of need. Tim Keller, in his book, 
actually explained it like this. He said, God will either give us what we ask for or give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knew. God will always listen to our prayers, will always answer our prayers. But he'll give us either what we asked for or what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knew. As we move towards the close, let me just share one more story with you. There was a Dutch writer named Cory Tamboon. Some of you may have heard of her before. Um, but, uh, but she and her sister Betsy were in a Nazi concentration camp during World War II. And as you'd expect, the conditions in that concentration camp were horrific. They were surrounded by evil and suffering and torture. They couldn't make sense of what was going on, everything that they were experiencing. And one day, Corey and her sister were moved from one living quarters to another. They're hoping things would look better, that things would be looking up, but it turned out it was actually way worse than the previous camp. They were on these thin, straw mattresses, but worse than that, the mattresses were filled with bugs and fleas. Just a horrible mess. With everything else going on, how could they live in this flea-infested place? Betsy, who was the older sister, encouraged Corey to trust God and his provision for them. But, but no matter how hard she tried, Corey could not thank God, could not be grateful for the fleas. She wrote this in something she wrote. The fleas, this was too much. Betsy, there's, there's no way even God can make me grateful for a flea. But strange as it sounds, it turns out that the fleas were a gift from God. No guards wanted to enter these quarters because they didn't want to come across and encounter these fleas. So the guards stopped coming in and stopped harassing them. They were able to have Bible studies together with the other women, undisturbed. And, and none of the women in that quarter, they report, were, were hurt, were harmed, were harassed, were assaulted. Through those fleas, God protected the women from so many worse things, made sure that they had the deepest and truest needs met. He sees the bigger picture. He always answers our prayers, but sometimes he gives us what we would have asked for if we knew what he knows. The challenging invitation of faith is to learn to trust him even in the darkness. Learning to trust God even when we don't understand why or the reasons. To keep on asking, to keep contending, even when he feels impossible to find, to keep on seeking to keep on knocking, knowing that sometimes the door that we think should be open is not the door that's gonna to lead to life. Knowing that God does hear us, hears our prayers, and that he is working on our behalf. C.S. Lewis, he wrote that Satan's cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do God's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him, of God, seems to have vanished and asks, why have you forsaken me, but still obeys? Sometimes our prayers are answered like miraculously, like when God sent the angel to Peter out in prison. Sometimes miraculously gates are opened and lame are healed and sight is restored. But for every Peter story, I've found that there's a James story. There's a story of, of tragedy for every miracle. Someone's struggling to understand why God didn't do what they thought he was gonna do. And while the kingdom of God is breaking into the present, and we see glimpses of the age to come in the present, we also experience the consequences of the fall every single day. But can I encourage you, take hope, because God is using it all. 
He's working in the midst of the chaos like a master playwright. He's using even the worst of situations that we go through to produce in us even greater fruit. And whether we see full restoration on this side of eternity or whether we don't, you know, ultimately we have this, this future promise, a future hope where all pain and all sorrow and all tears will be wiped away by God himself, where we'll enter into his perfect peace, where every body and every mind and every soul will be fully healed, be fully restored. Everything will be made right. But can we trust him in the process? I'm so inspired by the faith of that early church that we read about in Acts chapter 12, a community that kept on praying in the face of unanswered prayer, a community that was persistent in trusting God, knowing that he was good, and that their greatest sort of source of help in, in, in their time of need was God himself, a community that was sometimes left questioning and in disappointment, but also saw God do incredible miracles. Can we recover this legacy of our ancient ancestors? Can we become this persistently praying kind of people, crying out to God to move in our midst, to save and to restore and to redeem and then trusting him with the outcomes, that he knows so much more than we know? Let's pray together, and then we'll respond. Well, Lord, I'm so aware that there are some in this room who are in seasons of great joy, of celebration, babies being born, the joys of newlyweds and promotions at work and, and celebrating. I also know there's people in this room who are in seasons of great darkness with diagnosis that they weren't expecting, and relational turmoil, kids that are wandering and struggling, God, I pray that you would give us the courage to trust you. In the midst of the situation, in the midst of the questions, to continue to persist in prayer, knowing that you are good and faithful and that you truly do want what's best for us. And then we trust you with the outcomes, knowing that you see so much more than we see, that your plans and purposes are good, but that you're working in the midst of the mess and the rubble to make us more and more like Jesus. Pray that you would give us everything we need to be everything you've called us to be. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.